Hello, everyone. I am Carrie, and it is an honor to be here with you tonight. So I'm going to start with a little bit of background on Genesis, just to kind of remind us of where we're at. And Genesis is basically set up as a literary structure, and it's broken into toliodotes, and that's one of the words that we learned um, several studies ago, which basically just means a story or an account of. And this week, we are going to be starting the eighth toliodote in Genesis, and it is the story and the account of Isaac. So it begins a very lengthy narrative that starts now in chapter 25 and takes us all the way up to chapter 35. So last week we wrapped up with Abraham, who had just um, secured a wife for Isaac, which was Rebecca. And Abraham lived 175 years, which was 35 years after finding the wife for Isaac. And then with this, it starts telling us that Isaac was 40 40 years old when he married Rebecca. So one of the common threads that you're going to see throughout Genesis, and specifically in this particular topic, is how faithful God is, how faithful he is in in the covenant that he makes with us and bringing that back around no matter what happens. So when Karen talks about how we mess up, this week is just like one big ongoing soap opera that just keeps building on itself over and over. And the amazing thing is that there's a reason that no matter what happens, God is faithful and he carries through all of his promises. So in the beginning of this section, we immediately see that there is a challenge of history repeating itself. We find out that Rebecca is childless. So there's 20 years between the time that they get married and that they actually become, and that actually becomes a father. So we kind of realize immediately that we're sounding very much like somebody else that we've seen, and that is through Abraham. So we can be pretty much assured that throughout Isaac's upbringing that he's got to have heard the story of his birth, right? He's got elderly parents. They were definitely elderly. He knows how old they were when he was born. He can assume that Abraham definitely credits God for his birth and and the um, fact that Sarah was able to give birth at such an old age and that they have all of these I will statements that God is giving to them throughout their life. And so he says, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll give you all the land that you see for you and for your offspring. I will give your offspring more than the stars, more too numerous to count. And he says, I will establish my covenant with you and all of your descendants and for generations to come. So he has to have heard this. This is not something that's going to be new to him. He has to have known how difficult this was, but yet God made this promise and that God is very faithful So the storytelling and sharing of family history was very normal back then. It was something that they did to keep their family line um, going, to understand the history. It was before they had it to read about. So we immediately see a difference in the way that Isaac handles the barrenness that comes than the way Abraham did. So Isaac says in Genesis 25, 19, that he prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren. Now the word prayed here is the Greek word athar, and that means intercession or intercessory prayer. So Isaac's intercessory prayer shows that he knows the Lord is responsible for human uh, reproduction, and so that he knows that the Lord also answers his prayer because it says the Lord intercedes on behalf of his prayer and that he knows he's faithful to his promises. So intercessory prayer is what really ties this connection to let him know that God is listening to him. Although we don't ever see that Rebecca prayed for herself, 
when she became pregnant, she did go to the Lord and inquire. So here she is, is pregnant. This is something that's a first-time mom for her. And she goes through this thing, and she finds out she has jostling. Now, this jostling is not like the movement of a child that we have all felt if you're a mom. And that's a movement that you never forget. You keep that with you forever. You know, as long as your life is, something's going on, and, you're, and you have that momentarily thought of, I remember how that feels to have my child move inside of me. But instead, no, it says that this is jostling. So this isn't um, something that she is happy with. She's very, very concerned. And the root word for jostling on this is racist, which means violent collision, crushing or breaking. So Rebecca goes to the Lord and she cries out, why is this happening to me? This is kind of letting us in on her world where she is obviously very worried about what is going on with either the life of her children or possibly her own life. And the Lord speaks to her, and I need you to know that this is a really important point. God speaks to her as a woman. This again shows, just like God spoke to Hagar, that he is very concerned with their well-being, the way they feel, their concerns, what goes on in our heart as a woman, God's concerned about that. And he reaches out to her and he actually says to her, there are two nations in your womb and the separation of two nations has begun in your body. Now, I don't know about you, but this is one of those things that kind of makes me think like, never mind, <laughs> I didn't really want to know. <laughs> you know, it's just like, um, I thought it'd be something simple, right? So um, the God says that one people will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. So this is a big foreshadowing of what God has going on in the future. So God has many themes in Genesis, but one of them that you're going to see over and over and over again is separation. There's a separation of Adam and Eve from the garden as a result of the sin, right? That's why they were asked to leave the garden. There was a separation of Noah and his family from the rest of the entire world as a result of sin. There's a separation from Ishmael from his father, Abraham, as a result of the sin from him coupling with, the, with, the, um, um, with Hagar. So God has an intention. God has a plan. And sin constantly creates a separation. So part of God's plan is to bring us back so that we aren't in a separated state from him. So the foretelling of another separation is now the separation of two nations. So you're also going to see um, value of birthright so, or the loss of it. It's called the prodigious lineage. The Lord says that the older will serve the younger. This is really outside the norm. This is not what happens. This is the way that things have been set up, that the oldest son takes on the, the growth of the family and, and brings on not just the inheritance of money, but also the blessing in a family. So this is very different. Abraham's firstborn son was not in the lineage of God. It was not his planned purpose to be him. So there was this prodigious lineage in his family too. So we also see a foretelling of another prodigious lineage, and that's with God's words, that the oldest will now serve the youngest. So God commits to the future of Israel which is his commitment to Jacob, even before his birth. And that's because God is faithful. So now we get to the birth. So the firstborn son is Esau, and he's born reddish and all over hairy. 
think this is why God made moms love babies from the moment they're born, right? Because we don't see those things, right? But it really makes you wonder. They named him Esau, which means hairy. I'm like, didn't they have the book of baby names back then that you could come up with something a little better than that? But then the second son was born, and he was born holding on to his brother's heel. And he was, of course, named Jacob, and he is the one who grabs the heel. So when you see when Asa grows up, he grows up into be a very skilled hunter. He's a man of the outdoors. He likes to be out there. Jacob was quiet, peaceful, living in tents. So right now we find out that there is a family dynamic that is creating another separation. And that is because Isaac and loved favored Esau because he enjoyed eating the game. So they kind of had their thing, right? And then that Jacob was favored by his mother, the peaceful be at home, be close to mom. So there's this family dynamic now that's creating a whole nother separation. So here comes the conflict. And it begins that Jacob has cooked some red stew. Esau comes in, he's starving, and he says to Jacob, give me some of that red stuff. And then he's tired and he's hungry. And I can just imagine this whole dramatic, give me some food, I'm going to die. Reminds me kind of of my teenage kids at times when they think. But it also speaks to the fact that he probably was not very successful in what he was doing, right? Because if he was out there hunting and he was good at what he was doing, at least on this particular trip, he wouldn't have been so famished because he would have had something to come back with, a hunt or a skill. So he brings it out and he says to his brother, I'm about to die because his brother says, sell me your birthright. And he's like, what's good is a birthright to me. I just need to eat. It's very dramatic. Oh, I don't need it. We kind of batted this around. What does this mean? Did it be, think because he thought his father wouldn't care and he would, you know, overlook his youthful indiscretion of giving up his birthright? But he does. He sells his birthright for a single meal. So then we go into chapter um, 26. From there, we have history repeating itself all over again. There's a famine in the land in the land of Canaan, and it's very different from the previous famine, which was in the days of Abraham. On this one, Isaac goes on a sojourn. That's another word that we learned in some of our other studies, and it means to travel or wander temporarily. And on the way, God tells him not to go to Egypt. So amazingly enough, he does. He listens, and God reiterates his promise and tells him that he's going to give him the land and give Isaac multiple descendants. So God is so faithful He repeats his promises over and over and over again, despite what happens in this whole dramatic um, storyline we have going on. So God repeats, he starts by telling his covenant to Abraham in Genesis. He does that in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Then he tells it again to him in Genesis 15, 4 and 5. Then he tells Abraham again in Genesis 22, 17 through 18. And now to Isaac in Genesis 26. So then we run into that. So Isaac says he's going to stay in Gerar as he is instructed by the Lord. And then when asked of the men of Gerar who this woman is with him, history repeats itself. The whole story family line, surely this has come out at some point in time, right? But the first thing he pops out of his mouth is, she's my sister, right? So he does this because he says he's afraid he might be killed and because his wife was very beautiful. But there is a really big difference from when Abraham said this, because when Abraham said it, it was a half-truth, right? 
It was his half-sister, so it was a half-truth. When Isaac says it, there's no truth to it whatsoever. So it's a complete and utter lie. So it's a deception. And you're going to see, as we learned in our, in our study this week, that deception definitely has a price to pay. So it doesn't say that Rebecca is actually taken into the harem, but it clearly says that her beauty made her well-known in the area. But Isaac's lie is found out. Abimelech looks out the window and he sees Isaac caressing his wife, and it could be something as simple as brushing her cheek or winking at her for all we know, but clearly it isn't a brother and sister exchange. So Abimelech comes to her and he says, what on earth? Why have you done that? He's very upset. He says, you are not brother and sister. Now, this is not the same Abimelech that we saw last time, because you'd think like after a while, like, wouldn't you know? But Abimelech is really a title. It is a leader. It is like the word Pharaoh. So there is a, actually a hundred-year stretch between chapters 20 and 26. So not the same man. But, however, he does say to them, one of my men might have um, been intimate with your wife. So you, you know that he's concerned about this. But then he said, and brought guilt on us. So... He's referencing the fact that it's happened in the past. And the last time it happened, his whole entire women in this thing were all barren. So he has to have heard the stories about what was going on. So now he's like, oh, no, you've got to no." So he says, um, I need you to not touch this woman. So he commands all of his followers that you are not to touch this woman. And it wasn't just a recommendation, but he said that their disobedience would be punishable by death. So although he was not respectful of his wife and he kind of put her out there in harm's way for his own protection, right? I don't want to tell anybody because I fear for my life. You're so beautiful. Somebody's going to kill me so they can take you. God protects her. And he not just protects her, but he puts an absolute closed door. No one is to touch her or they are punishable by death. But what this does is it actually offers Isaac and Rebecca the opportunity to have relief from concern from where they're at and not being within their own homeland. And in one year, they reap a hundredfold what was planted. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. That's just amazing that God's blessings can be so complete, so over the top, despite the fact that all of this started with lie and deception, trickery, worrying about himself. So they are favored, the Lord blessed them, and Isaac became great and gained great wealth. It's noted as being very wealthy and very distinguished. So he has got stature now, too. He's got flocks and herds and many servants. But this also caused the Philistines to be very envious of him. And so with that, they went around stopping up wells um, that were previously dug by Abraham's servants. And I'm sure you can understand how stopping up of the life water, the water that's needed to feed all of these flocks of all these many herds, can be grounds for having wars. This could be something to really say, if he's got power and stature, could create great conflict. So actually Abimelech comes to Isaac and tells Isaac to leave because he's coming too powerful. And then he actually moves on to the Valley of Gerar and settles. 
So Isaac starts redigging these wells, which have been filled. Again, with the whole well thing, there's a big theme here, right? God's moving his family that he's chosen using famine, using wells. He is going to bring all of this about because God is faithful. He is going to be faithful to his word. He is taking people there even if they don't even realize it. He gave them the same names that his father had given him. Severance dug another well and the herdmen's quarreled and so they moved on. Isaac took the high road. Could have been a fight. Could have been war. He took the high road. He moved on. He dug another well, which was also quarreled over. Finally, there was one that he dug and there was no quarrel and he named it Rehoboth, which means broad places. Noting that the Lord has made room for them and that they would be prosperous in the land. So God's kind of settling them down. So Isaac then goes from there to Beersheba, where the Lord appeared to him, and God reiterates his promise to Isaac he made to Abraham. God is faithful. He continues to bring hope and promises. Isaac builds an altar right there, prays to God, and has another well dug. So water for everybody. Abimelech seeks Isaac out to make a covenant with him because he sees how powerful he is. And by bringing this together and making a covenant, he sees that he can take and have peace in the area. So they make an oath with one another not to harm. There's a big formal banquet that they have a feast, then the covenant made, and then they part ways. So chapter 26 ends with two verses bringing Esau into the picture, which is kind of the strange thing. It looks like he's just kind of plopped right back on in there. But he's 40 years old when he marries. So this is the same age that Isaac was when he married Rebekah. Esau takes two wives. Both are Hittite women. So now all of this um, controversy they had in their family and people picking favorites and all that, it's noted that Esau's choices ended up being a disappointment to his parents and that um, Esau has, was a sort, his wives were a source of great grief for Isaac and Rebekah. So Isaac's getting old. He calls in Esau to his side and he tells him it's time to give him his blessing. What's the difference between Esau selling his birthright for food and for the blessing that's given by Isaac? So uh, a birthright is financially driven. It's what's due to you, to the firstborn son. It's what kind of goes down. It's all of your wealth is given down to him. But the blessing is spiritually driven. So this is really where he's going to be giving the spiritual blessing, but God's plans are going to prevail. So Isaac asks Esau to go out on a hunt, says, go get some food, come back, let's eat. We're going to sit down and we're going to do this together. But Rebecca and Jacob have another plan, more deception. So they go on to deceive this. They go to great lengths to deceive him. They get the meat that Rebecca cooks and prepares. Jacob actually puts the animal skin on so that when his father feels him, he's got the hairy arms and, and the, the touch. He puts on his brother's clothes so that it smells like his brother. So they went to very great lengths here to make this deception well known. And then Isaac buys the deception and puts the full blessing on Jacob. So the blessing is that heaven's due and earth riches. So everything from heaven above to the earth below is all in this blessing. That he's going to have abundance of grain and wine. That he's going to have a leadership of nations and your brother to serve you. How interesting. It's the very same thing that he, she was told in the womb that this would happen. And that he would have God's protections. That those that curse you will be cursed. And that those that bless you will be blessed. So this is a really complete blessing, all in God's plans. But there is a cost 
of deception. Okay, so Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Reap what you sow. You soon will see that Jacob's deception will reap deception back in return. But God does promise us that if we sow from the Spirit, that we will also reap from the Spirit. So it's an amazing promise. And there's also separation. So the cost of deception is separation. As we see in a lot of different ways with the sin separating us, now Jacob has to flee because Esau threatens him with his life. So Rebekah gets Isaac to send Jacob away, tells him it's time to go find a wife, and we want him to go away because the Hittite women are creating grief. So you can see how in all of these things, God is moving. We talked in our small group tonight about, you know, kind of why. Why does all this happen? And it all happens because God has a plan. He has a plan and a path and a covenant and he is faithful to carry it out. And he's carrying it out because he wants to be reconnected. He wants to close the gap of that separation that's now been put there so that he can be close to you and I even today. So Jacob starts on this long 500-mile trip back to Padaram to find a wife. And on the first night, he lays down to sleep, and he has a dream. And the Lord appears to him, and there is this stairway to heaven. So the old child's song, Jacob's Ladder, he sees it. And in it, the angels are going up and down and they're coming down and the Lord is there and he reconfirms his covenant and he promises to watch over Jacob, to go with him wherever he goes and to bring him back into this land. So even though he's about to take a long trip, God's reiterating his covenant again, the land that God has promised him. So Jacob wakes up and he puts this stone as a pillar and he makes a promise and he says, if God is faithful to your promises, then I'll make God my God. And I put a pillar of this house in that he promises to tithe. So here's another character of God that's coming out in all of this. God is the one that pursues us. Okay. God says in 1 John 4, 19, it says, we love because he first loved us. So God searches for Adam. Remember, after the sin, God's walking and he says, where are you? He knows where he is, but God is pursuing Adam. God goes to Cain, even after murder. He goes to Cain and he talks to him. God chooses Noah and he seeks him out for his work. God chooses Abraham to make a covenant with. God finds Hagar in the desert to tell her it's going to be okay. God appears to Jacob in a dream. It is important to God that Jacob have his own relationship with him, that it's not just enough that it's his father's God or Abraham. It is his own personal relationship. God wants Jacob to have a personal relationship and through that, God wants us to have a personal relationship. He seeks us all out, even when we don't realize it. He seeks us out because he wants to have a personal relationship with you. So the big picture of Genesis is that God is faithful. He has a plan. He's going to carry it out. He's going to be committed to us. He's going to be faithful to his word. Also tells us intercessory prayer is valuable. Prayer works. He answers our prayers. God loves women. 
He cares about them. He cares about their well-being. He cares about what you're concerned about. He cares about our troubles. He's there for us. He will talk with you. Although we're separated from God, he has a plan to save us, that our separation is the result of sin, but he is creating this whole work so that Jesus can come. This is to protect the covenant, to protect the family line, protect the process so that Jesus can be here and that he can be the one that closes that gap for us. There's the birthright challenge too, right? So that is only something that can be fixed with Jesus. God's only son coming to reconnect us to God's family, giving us back our birthright. God's a personal God. He wants a personal relationship with you. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you for your covenant. Thank you that you are a personal God. Thank you that you are personal to me and to each and every one in this room. Father, thank you that you care. Thank you that you want to hear from us. Thank you that you answer us. Thank you that you seek us out. Father, we give you the honor and the glory for all the work that you have done, for the big picture that we don't always see in the little everyday things, but that you have a plan and that you are faithful to that plan. Father, thank you. We give you the glory. Amen.